0: and he asked me to cover something specific. He's been in John. He just finished up John 6 last week, and, and he saw a bit of attention that he explored with you all. And he said that you're called to believe in Christ, who, who is described in John 6 as the bread of life, and, and it says that the Spirit is the one who gives life, right? You can't have life unless the Spirit gives you life. And no one can come to me unless it's granted him from the Father, but you're also commanded to come and believe in Christ. And there is a bit of a tension, Uh, it's not a contradiction, but there is a bit of a tension in the Bible when you read that you must believe, but that you can only believe if God calls you to himself. And he wants me to explore that a little bit today. So we're going to do that, uh, and it's going to be a little bit of a different sermon, uh, we're going to be all around the Bible. So what I want you to do is have your Bibles open. I'm going to put some up on PowerPoints, and I'm going to have us everywhere today. We're going to be in the New Testament. We're going to be in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Genesis. We're going to be in those minor prophets that you didn't even know exist. And you're going to have to go to your index and find some of those passages. But I think if you follow today, it's going to be a really helpful time. Because we're going to do this by following the story of two twins. Twins. Two people. Two babies in the belly at the same time that are born together. Twins have a unique bond. Uh, If you look it up online, I'm taking this as all true. They seem to be respectable websites. But it says that twins, they have this unique bond where at 14 weeks, they can socialize in some sense. They're interacting in the womb. 14 weeks means you're about the size of an orange. You're barely able to move. Not all your body parts have even formed yet, and they can detect that these twins can interact in the womb. Further, it says that after they come out, baby twins, it says 40% of them develop their own language as infants, that they're able to communicate with each other in a way that they can understand what they're saying, but they're not actually speaking a language yet. Uh, now, they say most of that goes away after you leave infanthood and you start to learn a, a language, but 40% do that. There's also something called vanishing twin syndrome. I think this is real. I saw it twice, both articles I looked up. It says that one out of eight pregnancies begin with twins, but one out of 70 End up as twins. They say it's vanishing twin syndrome, but what it really is is one twin absorbing or eating the other one. It's it's real. It's a real thing. Okay, it starts out with two, but not two make it to the end. One asserts dominance, and it makes it to the end. These twins have a unique bond. It's crazy. Twins who are born but then grow up apart, different areas. Don't know each other, no interaction with each other. It says that they are likely to have similar personalities, interests, and attitudes. Not because they know the other twin and know what that person's like, but because they are similar, extremely similar in their DNA. Their DNA is up to 90, is 99% identical. Okay, you have, you have a unique DNA, but it's so similar to your twin. right? You have, you have your own fingerprint, you have uh, your own teeth structure, I've been told, uh, but identical twins look identical. But either way, the DNA is very, very similar. So today, we're going to look at a set of twins, but they don't end up going the same way. They end up splitting, and they turn out extremely differently, both in this worldly sense and in the eternal so turn with me in your Bibles go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We've just finished a story about Abraham. Abraham has just died. He's the one who God gave the promise you're going to have a huge nation and a people. And we're in the time of Isaac, and Isaac is, is praying for a son. Because he wants someone to carry on the name. He knows that he's going to have a great nation, but his wife is barren. They're not able to have children. If you look at Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 21, it says, And Isaac entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh was moved by his entreaties, so Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, these two twins. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your wombs, and two people will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And her days to give birth were fulfilled, and behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. That means red, Esau does. Afterwards, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. And the boys grew up, the two twins, right, in the same household. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had an appetite for hunted game He was a hunter. He'd bring back meat for the family, but Rebecca. The mom loved Jacob. And Jacob had cooked stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Then Esau said to Jacob, Please give me a swallow from the red stuff, this red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So, as of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright. To Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You say, what is a birthright? The oldest son had a primary, uh, he would get it from his parents, the land and family leadership. He was going to be the family chief and priest of all the brothers, and he was going to get a double portion of the land. So this birthright is no small thing. This is money and and like power in the family structure. This is a big deal. And he sells it because he was hungry one day. And you start to see these two and they're pictured. You see Isaac, or not Isaac, Jacob, he's cunning and greedy, right? He sees an opportunity to get that birthright and he sells it to Esau. And Esau is dumb enough to take the deal. This man is dumb and ruled by his own stomach. His own desires are how he makes decisions. And it keeps going. If you go over to chapter 27, a little bit later, it's like 41 verses. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to jump around here. Okay? In verse 1, it says, Now it happened when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. It's at the end of his life. Down to, He says... He wants to give out the blessing. Down to verse 7, it says, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of Yahweh before my death. He's speaking to Esau. Uh, but he, So Esau goes out, but Jacob and his mother hear about it and Jacob's going to play a trick. Go down to verse 15. It says, Then Rebekah took the best garment of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. So he's in a facade that this is actually the other brother. Then he, Jacob, came to the father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? He didn't sound the same. But eventually in verse 22, it says, So Jacob came near to Isaac, his father. His father felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands. The hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He tricked his old dying blind father. What's he say in this blessing? Go down to verse 27. It says, see the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which Yahweh has blessed. Now may Yahweh give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. That means just plenty, all the riches of the earth. May, and an abundance of grain and wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Look what he says here. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Here he's given now the blessing to this second son, and he's going to make him rule over the brothers. Esau then comes back, and he realizes he's too late. He heard the words of his father. Verse 35 now, the father says, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your birthright. And he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me to his father? Uh, and he keeps begging for it. And in verse 39, Isaac gives him a blessing. But listen to the blessing. It's not good. It's a bad blessing. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your habitation. Away from all the riches and the fullness and the crops. And away from the dew of heaven, by the sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall be, when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. And he keeps going. Look at verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are near. He's about to die. Then... I will kill my brother Jacob. Jacob eventually runs away, and there's a time that passes, and they're able to uh, reconcile. But these are setting these two brothers on different trajectories. Jacob, he's cunning, and he gets all the promises. He's rich in the promise in verse 28. He's master of his brothers, and he's gotten all the blessing, but he doesn't deserve any of it, almost like all little brothers. Right? They find a way to become the favorite of the parents, and they get away with stuff. And the older brothers are stuck with the short end of the stick. If you're an older sibling, I sympathize with you. I know what that's like, but here is this younger brother, this deceitful one, coming at, out, and he's stolen everything from Esau. Esau, he's cursed. He's poor in verse 39. It says he's living by the sword in verse 40. He's serving his younger brother also in verse 40. And in verse 41, you see that this man is angry, and he's living out his life to get revenge. That is his purpose. You see both brothers, two twins, very different, but both have serious character flaws. If you're a parent, which one gets disciplined? Jacob or Esau? Which one? Both. One's a liar and a cheat, and one... (laughs) One is angry and is ruled by his stomach, right? His desires are the thing that rule him. You'd expect God to have the same response. These two boys are unlikely to be saved. So this takes us to our text where we're going to be this morning. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, that's the backstory, it's what it references back to. It talks about the boys, and it says, There was Rebecca, their mom, when she had conceived twins by one man, this is verse 10, our father Isaac. For though the twins had not yet been born, and not, had done nothing good or bad, so that the purposes of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said, the older shall serve the younger. There's nothing different. Their DNAs are almost identical. These are two twins, two brothers. They hadn't done anything, good or bad. They're the same effectively. He says, but the older shall serve the younger. And here's our verse for today. You can put it up on the PowerPoint. Chapter 9, verse 13. Just as it it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And here's our text for today. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You're going to see this all throughout the Old Testament. And you're going to see it. It's finalized here in the New Testament. And he explains why. And we'll get to that at the end. But it's going to explore this tension of, of how God can love some and not others. And what we are called to do. And here's the amazing truth. The amazing truth of this whole story and how you have to understand it is that God has mercy on some. What is amazing about this story is that God has mercy on some. What he talks about uh, to Esau is, is expected. What happens to Jacob is shocking and unexpected. This sermon isn't... I'm not calling you to do something today. I don't think that's the point of this text. What I am calling you to do is see the greatness of God. That's a proper application and worship Him from your heart, and if you know God, today's sermon it's not to go home and, and do something; it's to praise God right where you are. So, when we're reading here today, have that be your heart posture. And it takes us to point number one. There's only two points. Point number one is the expected treatment, which is hatred. Point number one is the expected treatment, which is hatred. How does God treat Esau? He says, "Just as it is written, Esau, I." hated. Let's pick back up with our story on Esau. In Hebrews 12, you can throw it up on the PowerPoint, 16 through 17, it says, and also there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau. This is how they describe him in the New Testament. He's a godless person, perhaps sexually immoral too. And how is he godless? He sold his own birthright for a single meal, had no wisdom or trust, or, or, or treasure in that. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. The birthright of Abraham and Isaac is gone. He sold his soul as a godless person. And God poured out his wrath on Esau. Here's an ungodly man who gets the wrath of God. And this response to Esau is the proper response of God, the expected response of God to you and to me. The God who created you for his glory to be an image bearer, to reflect his glory in the earth. is the one whom you've rebelled against. The same God is patient with you, even as a believer, as you continue to fall back into sin here and there. But You're making progress, but you fall back in. He's the God who is patient with you yet you continue to sin. The treatment that you deserve is that you get wrath. You reap what you sow. And here you see that God curses Esau. You you saw in Genesis, we read it quickly, it's also referred to as Edom. So Edom, or the Edomites, are the descendants of Esau. So we're going to look at some crazy passages in the Old Testament. Or not crazy, I think they're very normal. But they're often misunderstood and misread. And when you're reading it, you're like, I don't know what this is. Who are these people groups? Edomites are the people of Esau. So go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 49. We're going to read about these Edomites. Right? So Esau is long dead, but his people remain. Because God's wrath is not just against Esau, but it's against all of his descendants, his whole family, all his descendants. And in Jeremiah 49, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's after Psalms, after Proverbs. Jeremiah 49. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. What's he say? What's his attitude towards Esau, even here. It's a long time away since he's died. He says, but I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places so that he will not be able to conceal himself. His seed has been destroyed along with his relatives, It's his blood people, but also his neighbors, and he is no more. But he says, leave behind your orphans. I will keep your, them alive and let your widows trust in me. He says, your orphans and widows I will look out for, but all the descendants, all the neighbors of Esau, they're gone. Keep going. Uh, Look over at verses 17 through 22. He keeps saying it. He goes, Edom will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its wounds, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, the ones that were burned and incinerated. With its neighbors, says Yahweh, no one will live there, nor will a man sojourn in it. Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thickets of Jordan against an enduring pasture, for in an instant I will make him run away from it, and whoever is chosen I shall appoint over it. For who is like me, the Lord says, and who will summon me into court? And who is the shepherd who can stand against me? He says, hear my counsel, the counsel of Yahweh, which he has counseled against Edom, and his purposes which he has purposed against the inhabitants of to surely they will drag them off, even the little ones of the flock. He will make their pasture desolate because of them. The earth has quaked at the noise of their downfall, and there is an outcry and has been heard at the Red Sea. He says, behold, he will mount up and swoop in like an eagle and spread out his wings against Basra, and the hearts of the mighty men of Edom in that day will be like the heart of a woman in labor. I don't know exactly what that means. But it's not good. He's going to destroy these mighty and brave men. He's going to make them fearful. It's his disposition towards Edom. And when God says he hates Esau, he is not playing around. He cannot stand him. Flip over. Keep going forward to Obadiah. Okay, keep going. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Amos is like 12 chapters, or 9 chapters, and then is Obadiah. How many chapters are in Obadiah? One. Who knows what Obadiah is about? Anyone know what Obadiah is about? Anyone have a guess where we've been? What do you think Obadiah is about? Right? Here it opens up in verse 1. You guys find it yet? Obadiah verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says Lord Yahweh concerning who? Edom. Here's the people of Esau, the ones who God says he hates. Look at this and listen. I'm going to read 10 verses. Hear what he says. We have heard a report from Yahweh. An envoy has been sent among the nations saying, arise, let us arise against her for battle. Behold, he's talking to Edom, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell on the cliffs, clefts of the cliff, in the height of your habitation, who says in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build loftily like the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares Yahweh. He says, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would they not thieve only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not allow some gleanings to remain? And oh, Esau will be searched out and his hidden treasures ransacked. All the men who have a covenant with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There's no discernment in him. Will I not on that day, declares Yahweh, cause the wise man to perish from Edom and the discernment from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Taman, so that each one may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. When God says that he hates Esau, he's hated him from the beginning, and his wrath against this man has not stopped. Flip forward, verse 18, chapter 1. It says Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, that's a good thing, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. Not one, for Yahweh has spoken. The Lord hates Esau. Flip over a little further to Malachi. That is the last book in the Old Testament, right before Matthew in the New Testament. Flip to Malachi. Anyone know what Malachi is about? (laughs) Or anything in Malachi? It's not all of it, but part of it has to do with Esau and Jacob. And he explains in the Old Testament the difference between his relationship of Esau, which is hatred, and his relationship with Jacob, which is that of love. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. You can throw it up on the board the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh. Yet I have loved Jacob. You say, what is he saying? The point, at some point, the nation of Israel, Jacob's descendants, the people of Jacob, doubt the love of God toward them after undergoing some discipline. They say, how do we know we love you? How have you loved us? And he says, look at Esau. I hate Esau. Look at the brother. You're the descendants of Jacob. You have my discipline and my love, but you don't have my hatred. But the people of Esau was not Esau Jacob's brother? There is a contrast. For God has hated Esau from the beginning. Go PowerPoint again, verses 3 to 4. The very next; These are the next two verses. It says, But I have hated Esau, and I have set his mountains to be a desolation and his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been demolished, but we will return and build up the waste places. We'll, we'll, we'll by our own initiative, Build ourselves up again. Thus says Yahweh of hosts They may build, but I will pull down, and men will call them a territory of wickedness and the people to whom Yahweh is indignant forever. You have the people of Jacob and the people of Esau. They could not be more different. These two brothers are opposites. The hatred of God is an eternal thing. If God has set his mind against you, he will never change that. If he has determined you're a child of wrath, he's going to have his wrath on you for eternity. The judgment of God upon Esau didn't just end here on earth. It didn't just end with the Edomites, but he's still exercising his judgment and his hatred against Esau today in hell. That is the future for Esau. No parole No second chance. You can bring it back another day in court. Who's the judge? The same one that has been against him from the beginning. For the judge hates Esau for his sin. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if there was a fair response to our sin, the sin that you've committed and the sin that I've committed, it would be that we are treated as Esau. What would be fair, instead of saying, Esau, I have hated, insert your name. Blank, your name, I have hated. If God were to treat us as we deserve, the treatment of Esau, hating him and his descendants all throughout the Old Testament would be what you get for your sin. And the question, it it kind of breaks down here. That does God love everyone? Maybe you've heard this at school, at another church, or maybe someone has said this when trying to evangelize. God does not love everyone. There is a kindness which God shows to everyone. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. You see it in Scripture. You're all blessed by general kindness of God. The fact that you're here in this church listening to the word is His kindness. If you have a family, believer or unbeliever, you experience the goodness of God that he's created a family unit for you to enjoy. If you enjoy his nature all around you, you've experienced the goodness and the kindness of God. But this general kindness, which God shows to everyone, believer or unbeliever, uh, is just a general idea. But when it comes to salvation, this kind of love The salvific love, which is only found in Christ, there are only two kinds of people, those whom God hates and those whom God loves. And this passage is trying to split out those differences. Either God loves you or God hates you. There is an offer of love for all who believe. If you trust in Christ, you will be saved, but only those who believe will be saved. Put up on the board John 3.16. It says... For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that, what's the next phrase? Say it. Whoever believes in Him. That verse applies to the whoever believes in Him. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Is it all that don't perish but have eternal life? No. It's exclusive that if you, if you have believed in Christ you will have eternal life. But we'll go to John 3:36, just later in the chapter. He expresses the other side. He says, "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides. It rests, it sits, it's hovering over him." So, when you're evangelizing, if you're a believer, and you're thinking, how do I tell the gospel message? I would really caution you against saying God loves you. But what you can say, that's not evangelism, because they're a child of wrath, God's angry with them. The wrath of God is abiding on that person. But what you can say is that God has made a loving offer of salvation so that you can be saved from your sins. Your sin has you as an enemy of God. But what he's done in Christ is given you an offer that you can escape and be reconciled to God. You can come from a child of wrath uh, to an actual child of God. But God only loves those who are in Christ. So no, God doesn't love all, but that is what makes his love so amazing. For if we all got what was fair, all of us would be treated as Esau. But there's two parts to this verse. Esau, he's hated but Jacob, he's loved. So we're going to pick up the story. We're going to go to the, to the other brother, not the brute, not the hunter, not the one who's dumb enough to sell his birthright. We're going to go to the liar and the cheat, the one who's the deceiver and stole the birthright and the blessing. This man is the, gets the unexpected treatment. So point number two Point number one was the expected treatment, wrath. Point number two is the unexpected treatment, love. Point number two, the unexpected treatment, love. Romans nine thirteen, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, if, you, if you're still at Malachi, flip over to chapter 3, verse 6. You can put it up on the board. Later on in the book he talks about how he hates Esau. He goes, but I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You descendants of Jacob who becomes Israel, you're not consumed. You don't face the wrath of God. You have gotten the love of God. Esau is destroyed, but Jacob is preserved. One twin, while they started out the same, is the enemy of God. But this other twin, Jacob, is the friend of God. And you know that from this man, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that lineage comes all the tribes of Israel, and specifically the line of Judah. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these are the men who get the promise. Then Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. They all come from this man. And from that line comes the Lord Jesus Christ. This man, Jacob, he gets to experience a great blessing. It says in Matthew 1, I guess you can just flip over another page. Flip over one more page. You just went from Malachi. In Matthew 1, how does it start? This is the genealogy of how it went from the beginning to Jesus. And in in verse 1 and 2, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, or his kin. Jump down to 16. And Jacob, different Jacob, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. One man gets the eternal destruction of his nation. The other man, his descendants, bring about the Lord Jesus Christ. God has blessed Jacob tremendously. Being part of Jesus' biological family was incredible. Imagine if you knew that from your line is coming the Savior of the world, the Messiah, that from your family, in your bloodstream, is going to come the Savior of the world. It's incredible. But it's not the greatest act of love that God displayed to Jacob. That greatest love is that he was saved. In Hebrews 11, it describes Jacob as a man of faith. Not only did did God give Jacob the line of the Messiah, but he also gave him faith. In Romans 9, you can go back there. We're going to be in Romans 9 for the rest of the time. In Romans 9... Uh, It's not primarily referring to the blessing of earthly wealth, the blessing that he gets, or even that the Messiah is going to come through his line, but about the fact that he's going to get salvation in Christ. What is the greatest sign of blessing in your life? How do you know God loves you? It's not that you have a family, it's not that you have money, it's not that you have success, it's not that you have popularity, it's not that you're smart. It's not that you want the things to happen, in, you want the things in your life to happen and they happen just the way you want them to. It's none of that. It's that you've found Christ. It's a new heart. It's the gift of faith. That is how you know that God loves you. If you're here today and you know that you have eyes to see. You used to hate the gospel and hate Christ, but you've been given eyes to see that you now love Christ. They have been opened by the love of God. If you have ears to hear, Ears that used to hate the word, didn't want to listen, but now you treasure it and love it. They have been opened by the love of God. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's up here on the screen, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. You look back at the text in Romans 9, it says, they're two twins same father, they're not yet born, hadn't done anything. But God has a purpose. The older shall serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. They were equal before birth. And they're, they're all the same, bland sinners. But one is going to be used for God's purpose. It's like a it's like a, a, a container of pens, Right? They all look the same. You have a big big jar of pens. They're all the same. Useless. But someone is going to take one pen and use it for an honorable service. The king takes it and uses it for his purpose. Not because there's anything special in it, because the king decided he's going to use this one for a reason. And if you're saved, it's because God has chosen to save you. You're not saved because you were smarter. The only reason you were saved is because God has chosen. Why he said, Esau I hated versus Jacob I loved, I do not know, but that's what he decided. And the proper response today is simply to worship him from the heart, to express your thanksgiving to him, your delight in him, your thankfulness that you are not still dead in your sins, that you have heard the gospel, and that you love Christ. He didn't need to choose you. He didn't need to choose me. If you have loved Christ, he could have easily chosen someone else. It's nothing you did. This unconditional love is something you don't see in the world, right? In school, my dad was a teacher. You guys are in school. It's the no child left behind act, right? It's that everyone should should get through, Everyone should get the blessings of school. And now they're pushing what? Everyone should be able to go to college. That every one of you should have the opportunity to go to a good school and do it for cheap and affordable, and you should all get a good start in life. It doesn't go to everyone, this love. Nor does it go to those, nor is it a kind of love that's earned right? All around you, you see the spots of honor, right? You want to start on a sports team. How do you start on a sports team? You work hard or you're the son of the coach, one or the other, right? You're either the son of the coach, your dad coaches the team, or you work hard and earn your spot. You want to get a musical lead. Do you get a musical lead because you signed up for the lead or do you earn it because you sing well? You earn it because you do well. But this offer of salvation is a gift, meaning it's nothing you earn. And it just goes to some, and you don't know why, but it's that God has chosen you. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're stronger. It's not because you're more creative. It's because God has offered you salvation and given you a new heart. And you see all these things in the world, like you either earn it or everyone gets it. And it might bring up a cry inside you that says, how can this be fair? And Paul anticipates this question. And and he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The next two sections talk about two objections to that. And the first question that is raised against it, what shall we then say? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Basically meaning, is this fair? Paul answers in 14 through 18. He says... What shall we say? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. It's about as strong of a negation as you can find in the Greek. May it never be. Before we examine what the reason is, he says, don't accuse God of sin. This is not the answer. Of all things, God is not unjust. He'll tell you why some are chosen and why others are not. But it is not because God is unjust. That you can be sure. It's not because he's unrighteous. He goes on to verse 15. And he says to Moses, the Old Testament, Exodus thirty-three nineteen. 19, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The nature of mercy and compassion is that it's not deserved. You're in a pitiable state. You're in trouble. And someone offers you saving from this, some kind of help. It's having a heart of compassion towards a sinner. That is what salvation is, where God sees a sinner that's done nothing good and says, I want to give compassion and mercy to this soul. And verse 16 says, So then, it doesn't depend on the one who wills, nor on the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. Not on the one who wills or resolves or wishes. This includes those who are just trying to to try harder. Think sports, right? If, if, or, or like if you're in a competition, any kind of competition, you want to have like an unbreakable will that you want this to happen and don't let it be broken. And your goal for the other team is to break their will, right? Make them want to quit. Get up on them, keep the pressure on and make them want to quit and roll over and let you win. Think school. It's that I'm, I'm going to make this such a habit and a resolve that I will study every single day to get that good grade. Or maybe it's a desire that you say, I desire salvation. It's none of that. And then he goes on, he says, the one, nor is it the one who runs. It's not completely focused on the effort you can make. Salvation doesn't come to those who, who strive to the limit of your power, to read the Bible, to pray, to go to church, and to live righteously. That's not why you were saved. If you're here today and you're saved, that had nothing to do with it. You are saved Not because of the one who wills, nor the one who runs. That's not what it depends on, but on God who has mercy. It wasn't your resolve, it wasn't your desire, it wasn't the effort. It is simply this, God. And his character is that he shows mercy to some. Same word used earlier about mercy. Why are you saved? and someone else isn't? It's not because there's injustice on God's part. It's because God chose to have mercy on one. If you didn't choose to have mercy, neither of you would be saved. The fact that one of you is saved shows the character of God, that God is a merciful God. And if you're here today and you need to be saved, you need to call out to God. You know He's a merciful God. If you call out to Him, He will save you. And he says, for this, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I've raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Meaning some he leaves in their sin and others he brings to salvation. He's not required to show mercy to any, but he chooses to show mercy to some, which brings up the second question of why and how are humans responsible? In 19 through 24, you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Or does the potter... And he says, On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have, not have authority over the clay to make from one, one, lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And he basically says, You all rebelled against me. He's under no obligation to show mercy. I, as God, have right to show some mercy and to use other for destruction, both show my power. As a potter, you can make two dishes, one for a fancy dinner centerpiece and another for a bathroom. But in his perfect wisdom, he's chosen to save some. And here's what I want you to get about his mercy. The two points of application. How does this all reconcile? One, his mercy is by faith alone, not by works. This is what the Jews missed. Go down to verse 30 to 32 in Romans 9. What then shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They didn't believe in Christ, but tried to just fix their external actions, right? For knowing the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. They want their own righteousness to save them. God says it's not that way. And two, what you must also know is that his mercy can be had with you today. This is what we'll close with. Look forward to Romans 10, verse 9. He says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. The amazing thing about the sovereignty of God in choosing people is that he works in your own heart to make you desire to trust in him. And if God has worked in your heart and you want to trust in him today, you can do that. You cry out to him for salvation, for a new heart, and he will give you that. If you're already here with a new heart, You know that it's him who gave it to you. It's nothing you did to earn it on your own, and you can thank him for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. Uh, Lord, we are grateful that you are in control of all things. Lord, you have chosen to save some and not save others. This is too big for our minds to understand at times, Lord, uh, but Lord, the fact that you've shown mercy in your Son and given us an opportunity to be saved is, is wonderful. We treasure it. It is the greatest treasure we have here on earth. I pray for all in this room that we would grow in our thanksgiving to you for salvation and that any that don't know you would come to you. For you are the God of mercy and you are the God of compassion and you save all who come to you asking for life. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.